are entering the Freedom Hut. It's official. Creepy Joe Biden has sniffed his way right into the Democratic primary. He is now a candidate for president. We'll talk about whether this is going to shake things up or be much ado about nothing. That and all the rest of the news of the day coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Great. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Oh, yes. Joe Biden, everybody. Get excited. It's Biden time. Woo. Can you feel all the electricity in the air? Can you feel that hand slowly working its way from the small of your back up to your shoulder and then another hand working its way on the other side? Wait, was it was it sliding kind of off the off to the left and that that's almost your buttocks area. But no, no, now the hand's moving up. It's going further up the back and are you about to get a back rub from the vice president of the United States? Did, did he just sniff you? <laughs> Joe Biden. Oh, man. They're going to say all kinds of things to make that go away. But we got the video, folks. He's a weird guy. He's a weird guy. Now, look, you can, you can tell me. You can tell me that none of that really matters. And I, I do not pretend to make this a it's it's not criminal. He's not a he's not a monster or anything like that. Not at all. OK, we're just having a little fun with the fact that he's he's got some boundary issues for sure. And the guy has boundary issues. Uh, I've worked in many offices for many years and I have yet to have anyone. Sniff my head or kiss the top of my head. Uh, although, I don't know, maybe I'm just not wearing the, the right cologne. But Biden is in. And people are all very, very excited about this. And on the left, I guess. I mean, I don't Are they excited about it, though? That's let's put a pin in that for a moment. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that anyone's particularly. I don't even think Joe Biden is excited about this. He had his launch video, though, today, which was every bit as sanctimonious and self-indulgent as you would have expected. We'll play a bit of it for you. Play clip three. We are in the battle for the soul of this nation. I believe history will look back on four years of this president and all he embraces as an aberrant moment in time. But if we give Donald Trump eight years in the White House, he will forever and fundamentally alter the character of this nation, who we are. And I cannot stand by and watch that happen. The core values of this nation are standing in the world our very democracy, everything that has made America, America is at stake. That's why today I'm announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. What is he talking about? You know, that that those were all words strung together to bring certain emotions out of the audience. And there's all this grandiosity and you can hear the score in the background. Da, 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 America and. Our democracy is at stake? How? We had an election. Trump won the election. Country's doing well. Things are pretty good. What is at stake exactly in terms of the fun- the fundamental values of this country or what? I mean, I-, I really would like them to articulate this. I'd like Joe Biden to articulate this. What are they going to say? Because Trump fibs about things sometimes? Oh, I- I'm sorry. Is he the first politician who's ever lied? 
Oh, that's right. Bill Clinton lied under oath and didn't get charged for it. Barack Obama lied about a health care program that might even affected some uh, might have even affected some of you listening to the show. You might have lost your your plan after Obama intentionally lied to you, lied to the American people dozens and dozens of times about that. So what exactly is he talking about? You know, what do they think they mean? That's what you have to ask when you're talking about Democrats. What do they think they mean? It's not clear. Our democracy is at stake. The fundamental value. Fundamental values. This from a man whose party put forward Hillary Clinton in the last election. Because when I think values, I think Hillary. I also think charm and whimsy and pantsuits. Democrats live in an alternate uh, alternate universe. They live in a world where they really do think that they're the good guys against the bad guys. Whereas I think that we live in a country that, yeah, has its problems, but things are actually going very well. Trump has, by any reasonable person's expectation, wildly exceeded the parameters and the predictions set for him by the so-called political elites, the media, the intelligentsia, we were going to be in a huge recession. No, we're not. We were going to be a massive national security risk. No, actually, look. Trump has been better as commander in chief on national security than Obama was. And I have to tell you, than Bush was, too. Now, he wasn't dealt the same hand that Bush was. You could, we, could, we could quibble on this a little bit. Bush, 9-11, the rise of jihadism built for really decades before, but just ran amok under the Clinton administration. Uh, and then, you know, Bush comes into office and we are really under assault from an, from an enemy that was an existential threat to our society. It was. But you got to think about Iraq as well as Afghanistan and some of the decision making the Bush administration had. I, I think you could very easily argue that so far Trump is a better national security president than both of his predecessors. In fact, I think to find a president who is as sound on the fundamentals, I'm not saying... He's an expert. You know, Trump doesn't sit around, you know, learning the name of the premier of Botswana late at night. OK, I get it. But if you're talking about gut instinct and the fundamentals of what this country should try to achieve around the world and as importantly in foreign policy, what it should not try to achieve. Trump is better than anyone in his job stretching back to you'd have to go back to Reagan to find somebody who has the same degree of both love for the country and proper gut instincts about how to deal with our enemies and how to embolden our allies and not make huge mistakes. Not making huge mistakes is one of the biggest precepts of any, it should be one of the biggest principles of any foreign policy uh, in, in any administration. Trump hasn't done it yet. I'm not saying he won't, but if he gets this China deal done, You've got to go into this re-election thing. Hold on a second. He was right on the border, and they all said that he was crazy and racist. No, Trump has been right about the border situation. He hasn't been able to fix it yet, but we were being told by, you know, the, the I haven't forgotten, folks, the Gang of Eight Bill, the Republican Party, they were all about, all about trying to convince us that the only answer was amnesty, and that amnesty would be a great thing for this country, and that there wouldn't be future massive inflows of illegals. That's where the Republican Party was pre-Trump. 
To his credit, Mitt Romney was actually pretty decent on immigration in 2012. He was for E-Verify. He was for self-deportation. You know, Mitt lately has really ticked me off. Not just lately, but in the era of Trump, I don't know what to say about Mitt. He's gone off the deep end, but he wasn't bad on immigration in 2012. Check the facts. You'll see yourself. The Republican Party in general, though, has been very close to where where the Democrats were until recently. On China and trade and tariffs, Trump has been correct, despite the overwhelming consensus of the so-called experts against him. Oh, no, we believe in free trade. We don't have free trade. China's cheating all the time. You know, this is like if we're going into a basketball game and everyone keeps saying, no, you have to play by the rules. You say, well, the other guys have eight people on the court. Can, can, can we put three more people on our side? Because they have eight people playing the game. Oh, no, but we, we believe in five-on-five five basketball, Buck. They've got eight people. They've got eight people. You know, what, what do we say about that? No, no, we believe in five-on-five. Five. Okay, yeah, that's like saying we believe in free trade. You don't have free trade. They're cheating. Trump understands this. Is Trump up late at night, you know, reading Thucydides? No, he is not. Do I care when he actually understands very important issues of policy better than the people who are up late at night with their dog-eared copy of a Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, which I'm looking at right now on my desk. That's why it's on my mind. No, I, I think that Trump should get some more credit for this. Do we think that Joe Biden... Oh, don't worry, we're going to dig more into this. I didn't mean to turn this into a, a trump log. Do we think that Joe Biden has better judgment on foreign policy issues? Where, where has Joe Biden been on the biggest foreign policy decisions of the last 30 years? Someone who was brought into the Obama administration as the VP largely for the appearance of a steady hand on foreign policy. I can tell you this, Joe Biden on foreign policy has been remarkably, remarkably consistent. You must give him credit, folks. Joe Biden has been incredibly consistent in that he is always wrong. It's amazing to see. So he's quite useful in that way because when there's a tough decision on foreign policy, all you have to do is say, well, what does Joe Biden want to do? And then do the opposite of that thing and you'll make the right choice. But Biden didn't even push that far on his foreign policy creds today. They made it about how this is a fight for the soul of the country. And they did this video from Charlottesville, the favorite story for liberals to tell now about how Trump is literally as bad as Hitler, as they say. The worst ever. Some kind of demon that has seized the White House, taking orders from the Kremlin as he, you know, eats all the babies across the land and brings fire and brimstone to village after village. I mean, they have a an anti-Trump psychosis. And yet here we are, being offered up Joe Biden as his replacement. Charlottesville, he made a video. He made a video where he said things like this, play four. He said there were, quote, some very fine people on both sides. Very fine people on both sides? With those words... The President of the United States assigned a moral equivalence between those spreading hate and those with the courage to stand against it. And in that moment, I knew the threat to this nation was unlike any I had ever seen in my lifetime. The threat, and we'll get into the specifics of what is what is a misrepresentation, what is a, a falsehood that Joe Biden, and the media continues to spread this all the time as well. 
But I, I first want to deal with the notion that this is the greatest threat in Joe Biden's lifetime. Joe Biden is almost 70. So that means that Donald Trump is, by Biden's own own assessment, Donald Trump is a bigger threat to the United States than the Soviet Union, a bigger threat to the United States than China, a bigger threat to the United States than radical Islam, which includes al-Qaeda, which wanted to and still would like to get a weapon of mass destruction to detonate in a U.S. city and made efforts in that and it made efforts in the pursuit thereof. Donald Trump's a bigger threat than all of that? Any person who says that should be laughed out of the room. Joe Biden, for all of his grinning and glad-handing and baby-kissing and top-of-head woman-kissing that doesn't want him to kiss their head, all of that is really a fraud. He is the quintessential politician, stands for whatever he needs to stand for in the moment to advance his own interest and pretends that he's doing the public a favor. I would much rather take the the instincts and the swagger and the braggadocio of Donald Trump over the pseudo earnestness of a Joe Biden any day. Trump says what he thinks and Trump shares a sensibility in this country that we are sick of being talked down to and lied to by people who think they're smarter than we are, but they actually aren't. Joe Biden panders to those people. He panders both to the elites who think they're better than you are, and he panders to the victimology crowd that thinks the only reason that their lives aren't better is because of you. Because of you, you church-going, gun-toting, Bible-loving, married-likely person. You're the and you're not giving enough of your money away to the government. You see, you're the problem. I want to deal with the central lie here of Trump, uh, of Trump saying that the neo Nazis were the same as everybody else, and that essentially that Trump is pro neo Nazi. That's a lie. Maybe he was inartful in how he was explaining himself at the time, but that's a lie. It is a lie. Uh, He does not have pro-Nazi sympathies and people who say that are smearing him. But that's not much of a leap, is it? Because people were also saying and continue to, including one that we'll deal with later on in the show. That's coming up. People who continue to say that he's a Russian asset, a traitor. What is more likely the president is a traitor, is a racist, is a sexist, is a sexual assaulter, is mentally incompetent to be president? All things that prominent Democrats and media talking heads say about him all the time. Or that they're crazy. Here's the answer. They are crazy. I watched this very closely, much more closely than you people watched it. And you have, you had a group on one side that was bad, and you had a group on the other side that was also very violent. And nobody wants to say that, but I'll say it right now. You had a group on the other side that came charging in without a permit, and they were very, very violent. I've condemned neo-Nazis. I've condemned many different groups, but not all of those people were neo-Nazis, believe me. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. Those people were also there because they wanted to protest the taking down of a statue, Robert E. Lee. That is what Trump said. 
That is the full statement. And this this is what is supposed to be evidence of Trump being a horrible racist. At worst, Trump had bad information or was wrong that some of the people who were a part of this, this clash were really just there because they thought that they were part of a protest to take down a Robert E. Lee statue. And there are legitimate debates and discussions to be had about how we handle the elevation of Civil War figures from the Confederacy in our current time. But there, there are real debates and discussions. In fact, my friend uh, Jarrett Stepman is writing a book on this that will be coming out in a few months on, on the back and forth. And of course, now, you know, they want to tear down Columbus statues. And Trump did not say he likes neo-Nazis. He condemned neo-Nazis. He said he condemned neo-Nazis in that statement. Okay, I, I know the Trump family. I knew them growing up. This notion that Donald Trump is a is a neo-Nazi, this is just this is just bizarre. It's such a lie. It's such a transparent and obvious lie. But they say it. But they say it. They do it anyway. You know? Trump does not like neo-Nazis. Please, media, get something else. He condemned them. He says they're losers. He says they're bad. But you see, this is just they they have to find some way. To justify the frenzied anti-Trump hysteria they have, and this now manifests itself in Vice President Biden, the no- or former Vice President Biden. Apparently, he doesn't like that. By the way, you can't introduce him as former Vice President. You're supposed to just call him Vice President, I think, which is very weird to me. Um, that's in the writers for some of his speeches. I saw that yesterday. I don't know if he just likes to be called Uncle Joe, but. Joe Biden making this a centerpiece of his announcement, the whole Charlottesville uh, debacle, is really showing you where the left is going to go. They're not going to make some inspired, you know, call to national unity and and how we're no no no. They're going to run the most dishonest, scorched earth campaign imaginable against Trump to try to frighten normal people away from supporting a president who has provided and produced. Results, good results for the country, policy solutions that are bearing fruit. You're supposed to forget all of that and listen to their version of what Trump said in Charlottesville. We'll have more on Biden. As you can tell, I'm not a Biden person. That's coming up. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Yes, I think there's blame on both sides. You look at you look at both sides. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. And if you reported it accurately, you would say. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group. Excuse me. Excuse me. I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. So look, what Trump is saying, and, and you know, we, we go back to this again. He's saying that people that have a problem with Robert E. Lee's statue being taken down are not the same necessarily as neo-Nazis. He's trying to make that separation. He's trying to say this isn't the same thing. He's also saying that some of the people that were there as part of Antifa, 
I'm sorry. This is this is something the left doesn't understand anymore. You aren't allowed, let's say, if you do have the Nazis marching in Skokie, Illinois, you're not allowed to show up with baseball bats and bludgeon them to death. You're actually not allowed to do that. That that is not a, a what a civilized society does to speech that it does not like, including hate speech, including real hate speech. But the left has now abandoned all this. So they, they they're making Charlottesville a centerpiece of this, and they're making things uh, making things up really in many cases about Trump, which is that's nothing new at all. But one thing I thought was interesting is that Biden. Let's get back to let's dig into Biden a little more. I'm sorry, I just find you know every time. You turn on the TV and there's some left wing talking head who's making a lot of noise about how terrible Trump is. Their fallback is always Charlottesville. And I'm just like, you know, guys, the president, he he's talked about this so many times. He's condemned neo-Nazis. There's nothing about this president that indicates any fondness or, or love for neo-Nazis. But they just keep saying it. Because it for them is necessary to justify the insane and frenzied hysteria they have about how, as Joe Biden would put it, the greatest threat to this country in his lifetime, 70 years back, let's do the math there, that's quite a while, is Donald J. Trump. I, I would always want to ask, you know, I just give me one second before we, uh, what is the terrible thing that has happened because of Trump's presidency? It's a really interesting exercise when you ask a psycho lib to fill you in on this one. What is the really horrible thing? Uh, there's, oh, they'll probably say Charlottesville. And okay, I mean, e- even if he misspoke very badly in Charlottesville, no one, you know, he, he, this wasn't like a war. I mean, we didn't lose thousands of people. The economy didn't crap out. We didn't have, you know, millions of people lose their jobs. or something. What is the terrible thing that Trump has done? In fact, in a lot of ways... He hasn't been able to do some of the things that he would like to do that would be great, but he's been a pretty, in terms of policy, and I'm, yeah, I'm just going to say it, within the mainstream of Republican Party politics. Tax cut, tried to do a little trimming around the edges of Obamacare, did some of that, not enough. Trying to secure the border. Border security is supposed to be a bipartisan thing. What is the horrible thing that Trump has done that justifies this insanity from from Joe Biden and from everyone else in the Democratic Party that suggests that he's the greatest threat. Um, and here's a reminder. Now I want to focus in on Biden. I know I got a little bit distracted because I just I hate all the stuff they say about Trump all the time. But here's a uh, this is courtesy of producer Mike. Joe Biden's greatest hits. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that this guy that we're being told is a, a return to normalcy. This is the other pitch. A fight for the soul of the nation and a return to normalcy. Play clip 10. Man who will be the next president of the United States, Barack America. They're going to put you all back in chains. We got the first sort of mainstream African-American who is articulate and bright and clean and nice-looking guy. I mean, that's a storybook. His mom uh, lived in, uh, in Long Island for 10 years or so. Uh, God rest her soul. And... Uh, um, although she's wait, your mom's still your mom's still alive. Delaware, you cannot go to a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. Chuck Graham, state senator's here. Chuck, stand up, Chuck. Let him see you. Oh, God, love you. What am I talking about? Yeah, that last one was when he told the guy who was in a wheelchair to stand up. If you forgot, um, 
Now, look, some of these are gaffes. I mean, some of them are just Joe Biden being Joe Biden and their and their gaffes. Uh, others of them are you know, going to put you all back in chains. Really irresponsible stuff for him to say. Uh, but, but Joe Biden has a long history of being wrong. Um, in fact, here's one. You know, you, you look at uh, I'm trying to uh, if I were to try to do this off the top of my head, I, I probably could. Let me think for a second. I mean, if you're looking for the ways that Joe Biden has been wrong on foreign policy. Um, oh, here you go. This my, my friend Britt Hume over at Fox News pulled this one together. Joe Biden was for the nuclear freeze. He was against the first Iraq war for the second Iraq war and was opposed to ordering the raid that killed Osama bin Laden. On that last point, in case you're saying, well, hold on a second, Buck. Was he re- No way. No way he'd get that one wrong. Way, dude. Way. Play clip eight. He had to make a decision. The president, he went around the table with all the senior people, including the, church, the chiefs of staff, and he said, I have to make the decision. What is your opinion? He started the National Security Advisor, the Secretary of State, and he ended with me. Every single person in that room hedged their bet, except Leon Panetta. Leon said, go. Everyone else said, 49, 51, this to, got to me. He said, Joe, what do you think? And I said, you know, I didn't know we had so many economists around the table. I said, we owe the man a direct answer. Mr. President, my suggestion is don't go. We have to do two more things to see if he's there. He walked out and said, I'll give you my decision. Joe Biden, don't go do the thing that more than anything else probably helped Obama win re-election. There you go. Joe Biden for America, everybody. The judgment you can't count on. This is a this is a Democrat party that is looking to this man really by default. They are emotionally and increasingly psychologically predisposed towards at least a a Marxist trajectory for the country, if not open Marxism right now. Uh, they, They do have this belief that the country would be better if it was a democratic socialist country, which is just another way of saying a socialist country. They are in favor of this, but they know that it doesn't sit that well with some of their fellow Americans. They know that there's still some hesitation there's some reticence so they're looking at biden as well maybe he becomes the bridge maybe biden poses as a return to normalcy whatever that means by the way normalcy like how like obama spending a trillion dollars in a stimulus package uh, after the bailout of the banks and then the first thing he decides to do is go through a viciously partisan battle over health care and pass a massive new entitlement without a single Republican vote to support it? I mean, that that's the kind of normalcy we want to return to? Do we want to return to riots in major U.S. cities over lies that are being told to people about police violence and and the systematic nature of police hunting young African-American men? Are, are we, do we want to return to, the, to those lies? When they say return to normalcy, I think this is interesting. Who says we want normalcy? If normalcy is what we had before, I'm not I'm not on board for that. In fact, Trump's rise and election was in large part a repudiation of what the political elites have told us is normalcy. Trump's rise is meant to be a slap at those who have 
pretended to be our betters for so long on all these issues, to know more than us, to have a greater understanding, greater wisdom. And this is why when you look even further back, you find out that uh, Joe Biden, where's this, where's our throwback with Biden when he had to drop out? Because oh, dropped out of the presidential race. Why? Remember, return to normalcy, like, you know, the, the ethics and the, the truth-telling of politicians past. Who believes this crap? Here's Biden back in 1987 dropping out of a presidential race. Guess what? For plagiarism and for lying. Play clip nine. Is the man in the dock for using other people's words without credit and being less than truthful about the credits he received at law school and at college? I do it with incredible reluctance, and it makes me angry. I'm angry with myself for having been put in the position, put myself in the position, of having to make this choice. And I am uh, no less frustrated with the environment of presidential politics. Be that as it may, I've concluded that I will stop being a candidate for president of the United States. Because he lied about being in the top of his law school class. Turns out he was more like the bottom of his law school class, which if you listen to enough Joe Biden speeches, it's not surprising. And speaking of speeches, he also stole a speech from a, plagiarized a speech from a member of parliament in the UK. And if you hear it, it's, it's pretty amazing that he uh, was as blatant about it as he was. But so, so is that the return to normalcy? A career politician? A, a career fabricator? What does he bring that is so much better than what Trump brings? I really mean that. A greater understanding of the free market, of economics, of how to run a business, a better understanding of who the good guys and who the bad guys are. I don't think that Joe Biden beats Trump on any of those fronts. Which then raises the question, can Biden win? Now, that doesn't mean, is he better? That's not the same thing. Can he win? Here's what uh, the esteemed... Former Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich said in his assessment of that, play seven. Can he beat President Trump? Well, conceivably, I mean, if the economy were to go really bad, if the president would have a bad campaign, uh, you know, you you don't know. The question is going to be, can the Democrats offer an alternative that people decide is better? Uh, If it's Trump versus perfection, I think President Trump has some problems. If it's Trump versus the most likely Democrats on their ticket, avowing for the things they claim they favor, I think he's going to beat them by a surprisingly big margin. I think so, too. I think that if if we if the election were held tomorrow, Trump would win against any Democrat. I don't care what the polls say. Oh, you mean the polls like the ones in the last election, those polls, the ones that the ones that led The New York Times to say that Hillary had a 97 percent chance of winning on Election Day? Those polls? Yeah. Polls are just often what the media uses in place of real data to support their preconceived political notions. Tells them what they want to hear and then allows them to spread that out to the rest of the country. Um, Newt also continued on here. I thought this was interesting. There is a, a real battle that is underway for the soul of the nation. And this makes me think of not just the Democrats that we square off against, but also many of the Republicans Many of the Republicans who are still rabid never-Trumpers, who have made common cause with Democrats, 
even though the Democrats have shown us time and again, particularly the last year in the Kavanaugh hearing, in the post-abortion bills, uh, post-birth abortion bills that have been passed in state houses, uh, they've shown us who they are. They've shown us what they're willing to do. And yet there are still Republicans who are so holier than thou that they would rather work with the ideological enemy than accept the imperfection of Trump. I find this position to be petulant. Here's what Newt says about this struggle for the soul. Play six. Uh, first of all, I agree with uh, Joe Biden. Uh, we are in a battle for the soul of the nation. You have uh, Democrats now who favor killing babies after they're born. Uh, you have Democrats who favor allowing uh, terrorists and bombers to vote while they're, while they're in prison. Uh, you have Democrats who are for open borders, letting anybody in who wants to. Uh, you have Democrats who want to take away your right to have private health insurance. Uh, let's go down the list. Uh, this is a fight over the nature of America and the future of America. And the difference is the choice next year is going to be the widest choice maybe in modern times. Uh, and I think Biden is going to find it difficult to navigate. Uh, and he's pretty rapidly going to discover this is a much tougher environment for a Democrat uh, than it was while Barack Obama was shielding him from any kind of hard questions. I think that's true. I think that Biden is going to wither under the public scrutiny, even though the media will run as much interference for him as possible. I think that Biden got a ride on Obama's coattails for eight years. And now that Obama, oh, we'll talk about where Obama stands on this. That is in itself kind of an instructive moment. That's coming up. Stay with me. You are the best choice for the Democrats in 2020. Why didn't President Obama endorse you? I asked President Obama not to endorse, and he doesn't want to. We should, whoever wins this nomination should win it on their own merits. It was a little loud there, but just in case you missed that, that's Joe Biden saying, oh, he didn't even want Obama to endorse him. That's right. The guy that he served as Veep for for eight years doesn't even want his endorsement sure biden sure i don't think that's i don't think that's what's happened there i think that obama is savvy enough to know that joe biden is not going to be the savior the democrats are hoping that he is this this world that they they think still exists where there's no real opposition to the left-wing democrat press where the american people don't have access to the interwebs and YouTube and the statements of politicians past, uh, that's not coming back. And, and a world where Democrat politicians are able to get away with making it up as they go along with any, without any opposition because the press are just scribes for those in power on the left, that's, that's not coming back either. So Biden's going to have a much tougher run than I think a lot of people on the left right now realize. Remember, he ran for president. He got like 1% of the vote. He was like Kucinich level. I went to see a Biden speech here in D.C. many years ago because I just I got invited and there were a bunch of Democrat candidates. I guess this would have been 2008, you know, that election. And, you know, Biden, it was like Biden and Kucinich and a couple of other people. I can't even remember who it was. You know, the the also, also, also rands. And that's where Biden was. I mean, he just kind of got picked as VP by default. And now the Democrats are picking him as their presidential candidate, perhaps, by default, and they forget that, look what happened with Hillary, guys. 
just trying to ride the establishment to victory because the Democrats have such an advantage in media and, you know, the campuses. And that's not a good strategy. But you know what? The, you know what the strategy is going to be? You watch. China interfered in the election. Just just watch. Or Russia interfered again if they lose. That's what they're going to say because they're babies. Let's talk about the economy coming up. Stay with me. Democrats in the state, Senate and House are proposing to raise the top tax rate for capital gains, interest income and dividends from 7 percent to 9 percent. That would make it one of the highest in the country. The Greenwich Head Fund Association and the, that world, which makes a lot of its income from capital gains, already coming out against the tax. The Hedge Fund Association saying, quote, in a statement that after five tax increases in 15 years and the new salt limits on federal taxes, quote, Connecticut taxpayers, high earners and otherwise are paying enough. Just 350 families paid 12 percent of the state's total incomes in, uh, income taxes in 2014. That's according to the latest census. And Connecticut was the only state in New England to lose population between 2017 and 2018. Let's talk about rich people. I've known some in my life. Let's talk about the Democrats' soak-the-rich approach to governance and what the results of it will actually be. Uh, This is central to all really but Biden's campaign pitch, it seems to me, so far. You certainly, with Elizabeth Warren, class warrior, Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is the Genghis Khan of class warfare. Elizabeth Warren is the sitting bull of class warfare. You know, this is... You like that? I like that. Uh, you know, this is what we, we see playing out time and again with Democrats, that they pretend to be the party of the poor and the, and the less fortunate, but there are all these billionaires who are liberals, and the, the moneyed elites on the coasts are overwhelmingly liberal. Goldman Sachs donated to... Hillary Clinton, I think more that I think there was more money from Goldman Sachs employees to Hillary than any other company anywhere in the country. That might be a little bit off, but it's something like that. Don't quote me on that one. Uh, but the federal government employees, as we know, because the, the Democrats are the party of the state and therefore statists will always vote for the party of the state. And that means bureaucrats uh, overwhelmingly went for the Democrat. Yet somehow they are able to keep playing this game of, well, we're just going to tax the very, very rich people and there's not going to be a problem. 350 families in the entire state of Connecticut. Now, Connecticut's not that big. You know, Texas burps up things that are bigger than Connecticut on a regular basis. I get it. But it is a state with a couple of few million people in it, I think. And that 350 families are paying 12% of the state's income taxes gives you a sense of how progressive the state really is, or rather the some of the tax rates we have really are. And a 3.5 million in the state of Connecticut. You know, I had I actually had no, I was going to guess two, so it's a little bigger than I thought, but I knew it was a few million. But th- So 3.5 million, 350 families pay 12% of the state's income taxes. Uh, we already, for those who are high earners, have a very progressive income tax. And when you look at the way that the top 10% carry the overwhelming majority of the income tax burden, you start to say to yourself, okay, what are we really trying to accomplish here? You know, what what is fair? What is realistic? And states like Connecticut and New York are losing population. You've already seen this in California. Those of you who listen to the show in Texas and Austin, what's up, KLBJ? 
you guys know that you have all these Californians. Hey, man, we're from California. We just brought our vegan soy latte, and you know they're they're showing up, and they want to take the policies of California and institute them in Texas. Now you're going to have flight from Connecticut and New York down to Florida. Now, in a sense, I think that this, you know, on the state by state level, I'm less bothered by it because that's a good thing. We have federalism. We have you can flee your crappily run state and and be an American and stay in America. Right. You can do that. I somehow only managed to live in incredibly blue states run by quasi commies. But nonetheless, here we are. But you can do that. You can flee. Um, you can, and that's what's happening now. Some of these very wealthy blue states, people in New York and Cal- and uh, New York and Connecticut, are going down to Florida. Uh, and of course, no surprise, the one and only Rush Limbaugh was way ahead of the curve on this one, because you don't want to pay the taxes, you don't want to deal with the crap in New York, you know, you don't want to deal with the the soak the rich attitude, which and a lot of people that, that are paying super high taxes aren't rich. They do well, they're working really hard, but they're not rich. And the cost of living in these places is so much higher. You know, you guys all laugh. I mean, I sit around that I'm, I'm trying to save up to get that, you know, 450 square foot apartment. A lot of you are like, Buck, my laundry room is 400 square, uh, 450 square feet. You know, if you live in South Carolina, Texas, Nevada, Iowa, you know, you, you live in parts of Florida, not all of Florida. You know, you, you have real space. You have real space. Um, we don't have that in these cities. I mean, you pay so much money. But the federal government, this is where the campaigns really matter. The federal government having a soak the rich attitude, that's where things get scary. Because now you can't go anywhere. Now you're, now you're stuck. And what we've seen time and again is that the Democrats' promises to have their, their dreams paid for, their dream policies paid for by the super rich, always has impact on people that are not super rich, and it's very negative, and they overpromise and they underdeliver. And there's something fundamentally unfair about what Bastiat would have called plunder. And this desire that every every man has in a in a state uh, in a state where the government has too much power, they promise people that they can live in this world where every man lives at the expense of every other man. It's good politics, right? This is the same as saying, well, you don't have to go work today. You don't have to work out in the field so that you can, you know, get your share of, of the harvest. Well, somebody else will do the work in the field for you. You get to just hang out at home. You don't have to do anything. It, that's very compelling. It's also very dangerous, goes against human nature, and has major social pitfalls that, as we know, keep happening time and time again. As the great Larry Kudlow said yesterday, socialism is a loser. <laughs> I really like that, by the way. We might have to actually put that... Producer Mike, do you think we should work that into the, the show the show open? I feel like that would be kind of fun. Socialism is a loser. Uh, it would be a good bumper sticker, too. But it's true. It's true. All these promises that, that are being made by Elizabeth Warren and others uh, to get people to think that there will be someone else who pays, uh, we have a long history of this, and it, it's not true. And really, the, the most pernicious version of this plunder which is what Bastiat called it. Um, the most pernicious version of plunder is intergenerational. And this is where we look at the debt, which is now $22 trillion, where all you have is our system promising 
payment at a future date that will fall on people not yet old enough to tell the system, hey, you can't do that. You're not supposed to do that. Democrats are doing this and then some. No one takes the debt seriously in this country anymore in politics. I'm sorry, no one. No one's making the case right now. You know, maybe Mike Lee gives a speech like once a, once a semester. I don't know why I went semester. It's not in college, but you know what I'm saying. Once a year. There you go, Buck. But no one really takes the debt seriously. You know when we're going to take it seriously? When there's a big panic in the financial markets, which people say, oh, that's just Wall Street. No, it's not. It's going to affect everything. It's going to affect your your borrowing costs for your mortgage. It's going to affect the value of the dollar that you're using to go buy food. It's going to have ramifications that affect all of us. And the problem with waiting for the panic is that it's far too late. But you know what the the Elizabeth Warrens and the you know the others on the Democrat ticket, Bernie Sanders, you know what they're going to promise? Uh, they're going to promise that the, the only reason we're in that situation is that the rich people weren't paying their fair share, and all you have to do is give the government more power, and they'll make sure that the rich people pay going forward. This is always their answer. It's like they've got a fever, and the only prescription is more taxes. Class warfare is strong politics for the left, but it's bad economics for the country. And it's also unethical the way the Democrats want to practice it. But that's what we're facing, folks. Socialism, it's a loser. Or is it? They are making and importing and bringing across the border illegally thousands of pounds of methamphetamine. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it with illegal aliens. In fact, one of these guys was stopped on four different occasions. Mm and wasn't detained, was documented, it was a catch and release, and he self-deported and came back and self-deported and came back. Why? Because that's the drug trade. Mm. So when we think we're catching them all, when we think there's not a drug problem, we're just wrong. There's a massive drug problem at the border, and you, you, have, to, you have to keep in mind this. The lawlessness of Mexico means that you can create illegal drug labs on a much larger scale and that you have much less fear of the authorities seizing that lab and actually really hurting your bottom line as a drug organization. You know, so this is where this is where the, the real economics of illegal drugs shows us that the Mexican cartels have a huge advantage. If you build a lab, and this is why methamphetamine, which you know he's mentioning that the drugs that are coming across, methamphetamine is at its highest usage now ever. 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 You know, that's just not something that you hear on the news very often. And... It's because we're overwhelmed with the opioid crisis. But the labs that they're making the opioids in, you know, what they have been doing is that they bring in the precursor materials from China. And now Trump has been working with the Chinese government to try to shut that down. Will that, is that really effective or not? We'll have to see. They bring over these chemicals in, in industrial quantities, I mean, huge vats, you know, moving on shipping in shipping uh, container vessels from China to Mexico. Then they set up industrial labs, bringing in real scientists. If you've seen Breaking Bad, this is pretty much what happens in that, except imagine this is happening all over Mexico, south of our border. And then they make meth, 
They make opioids. They're synthetically making all this stuff because it's so much cheaper and easier than, say, you know, cocaine is you have to grow it in a very specific climate. And But those labs, those labs aren't going to get touched. When was the last time you saw a major news story about a huge Mexican drug lab seizure? I mean, the cartels are operating all over the all over the country, importing billions and billions of dollars of drugs into America, killing 70,000 plus Americans a year now with opioid overdoses. And do you, do you see a lot of big drug raids going on? No. It's our problem, you see. The Mexican government's got other problems they're worried about. The drugs that are moving across the border, that's our problem. They leave that for us. And that's why when you, when you think about how, yeah, you could make meth in this country. I know people make it in the, you know, these labs that are out in the middle of the desert in, uh, what do you call them, uh, RVs. And they, you know, yeah, there are ways you can do it. But wouldn't you want to just get the super pure? If, if, you're, if you're an addict, you want to just get the super pure stuff straight from the cartels that they're sending over in vast shipments all the time. You don't want to mess with that. And if you're going to, be a, if you're going to try to be a dealer and compete, it's real easy for DEA to swoop in and send you to prison for 50 years if you're on American soil. It's not that easy if you're running a Mexican drug lab. This is, a, this is the biggest. People say, oh, it's not really a national security issue. This is the biggest problem that we face right now on a national security level the biggest long-term challenge is china sure i get that i admit that of course but the biggest national security threat day to day is the cartels and the drugs or are the cartels rather that those are the biggest threats we face and the drugs that are pouring across our border they're killing americans every day people are dying from this stuff it's also why i get a little frustrated with the the current discourse on nonviolent drug offenders. You always hear this phrase, nonviolent drug offenders. Well, nonviolent drug offenders are sometimes people that are selling very dangerous and even deadly illegal substances to people. And I, I think it'd be very hard if you sat down with the parents of somebody, say, who died from a, an opioid overdose, and you said, well, the person that sold them the drugs, knowing that he was an addict, knowing that he had a physical and psychological dependency that was being exploited, um, didn't mean any harm to come to him, but did put him in that position. I doubt you'd feel like you would want to make that case about nonviolent drug offender for the drug dealer. So I, I take it. Marijuana is different. Marijuana is different, just like it's different if you, you know, if you sell somebody a uh you know a 22 caliber rifle it's not the same as selling them a stinger missile launcher right i mean these these aren't the same things just because they both make a boom and have some very fundamental similarities of being a projectile device doesn't mean that they should be treated the same way although i did have uh on rising this doctor who came on who says that there's all this new science that says that marijuana causes uh psychosis and really scary stuff i, I don't know I, I don't smoke weed guys so I gave up smoking marijuana so that I could join the CIA. And I wasn't somebody who smoked very often. I mean, a handful of times, probably. Um, but I gave it up to join the CIA. And so that would have been now. It's been 20 years since I've touched any kind of a drug. 20 years. It's been a long time. Um, but I look, I, I think that every time I do a check-in on what's going on at the border, it feels like the situation is even worse and the press is just like they are with Russia collusion, which we talk about regularly in the show. They are dug in on making sure that they uh, are 
going to not look terrible on this one because they, they'll lie and lie and lie. But as long as they sort of stay with the, oh, we're just reporting on the humanitarian component of the story and we're just trying to tell people, you know, that they need to, you know, all that stuff, as long as they're doing that, they feel like they're going to be fine in the end. Even though they've told the lies about the caravan, the caravan was never going to make it, right? Now we're looking at what are like fourth or fifth major caravan arriving at the border? I don't even know. Depends on how you define caravan. There are three or 4,000 coming to the border on any given day. 10,000 people showing up at the border. Do you know what that's going to do when they get there to Border Patrol manpower? It's going to open giant holes in our border security. You know what's going to happen after that? Border security is going to de- going to deteriorate, and there'll be openings for poison to get trucked into this country, which is going to kill people in your communities. So, I mean, in that sense, you know, yes, I guess you, you can argue because I'm always saying that it's not really about it isn't really about the manpower. It's about the laws, because if you just could tell the 10,000, sorry, you're not coming to the country, then you can deploy the manpower you have for the national security mission. Uh, but Democrats are, ent- are ent- entirely unserious on this issue, entirely unserious. Um, they just flatly will not. They just flatly will not make any good faith effort to try and stop the massive illegal alien invasion from continuing. And I see it here. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm in the swamp. People know about this. Where is the action? Every time the administration tries something, every time Trump, to his credit, makes a move to try and get things to calm down on the border, Ninth Circuit, Ninth Circuit Court shuts him down. It's like he's not even really president sometimes. I mean, what is he allowed to do? Congress won't really do anything. And we only keep in mind, Congress never passed the laws that say things like you can only hold people for 20 days. Flores decree. That's just from a court. These are court decisions. These are unelected bureaucrats, lawyers, which should scare some of us, who are making decisions based on partisan ideology that affect national level policy. It's a big problem. I've been to the border twice in the last six months just to look at this issue. And every time I every time I think about it, I just it's so frustrating because Trump understood this problem. He's right. He has raised the, the discussion to a place where we're finally able to talk about this honestly, but the action right now, the follow through is just not there. I wish it weren't the case, but it's just not there. When you say, though, you want a high wall with a big gate, yes. a smart gate, but a high wall, that's going to sound to, to a lot of folks out there, that's what Donald Trump was. Well, I, I, I think you've got to control the border. When you have an increase of illegal uh, apprehensions of illegal entries by of 374% since October, um, uh, obviously, you've got a situation where the border security is not sufficient, and that's going to drive people who we should want to be pro-immigration against immigration. Democrats have been willing to fund more border security, okay? I'm for a high wall with a big gate, a compassionate, a smart gate, so we can keep immigration going, but you're not going to do that. Wolf, if people think people can just walk into this country, they're not going to support the immigration that we need. Even overrated super lib Tom Friedman recognizes that what's going on at our southern border right now is a disaster. What is happening is the wholesale destruction of our immigration system. What is happening is the removal of any good faith. In, dis- in discussing going forward what we will do with the illegals who are already in the country and with future waves of attempted illegal crossing. 
Democrats have fallen into being an open borders party. Tom Friedman was, as I said, very overrated lib journalist. He recognizes this because they're running out of room to pretend that they really care about all the illegal crossing. In fact, what we're seeing is not just that they don't care about the illegal crossing. They care. They like them. They like the illegal immigration. They like the crossings that are occurring in violation of U.S. law. They want sanctuary cities to be even more overflowing with people who are in violation of statutes that are still good law in this country. doesn't matter how much people say that they're mean or they're whatever. You know, until the Congress repeals that, and let's just be honest about it, if they removed the criminality of illegal status in this country, then we would be a straight-up open borders country, which does not exist in the world. Why are we not allowed to have borders in this country? Why is every other country on earth that's not in the midst of some kind of, you know, famine or civil war and that can't control anything, why are we the only country in the world that is not allowed to decide who comes and who goes? You know, I'm going to China next month. Turns out that's going to happen. By the way, we're going to have we're already working on getting a fantastic group of people to come in and, and guest host that week. So get excited. But I'm going to China next month. My visa just came through. It took, I think, almost six weeks to get a visa. And, and you know what would have happened if I had gotten real pouty? And try to just get on the plane and show up in China and say, hey, I'm here, guys. I know I didn't I didn't obey your laws, but they would have said, you're going home. There wouldn't have been any I wouldn't have, you know, no one would have cried big tears. There wouldn't have been a lot of noise They're like, no, sorry. Now, I know China's a there's a whole other bunch of stuff we could talk about with China, but they control who comes and who goes. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. And, and no one questions this. A lot of other things you can question about China, but name a country. They want to control who comes and who goes. You know, this gets to the, the fundamental conception of a state. It is, it is control of territory, right? It, it is, we, we do not have extraterritorial nation states. We don't have, oh, I'm, you know, the, the country of Bucklandia exists, but it's, it doesn't control any actual land. It's just a country, you know, in, well, I guess the Freedom Hut technically falls into this category. It is a country without any land, but conversation for another time. But Bucklandia is not something that is real. You have to have, if you're going to have a nation state, you have to actually have a place to put it. You have, you have to actually have territory. And who is on that territory really matters. Nation states used to go to war over land. People used to kill each other over who controlled what pieces of land. Now, you can argue that, Buck, that's barbaric and all that other stuff. But this is at the very heart of what a country is. Right? I don't want to live in America if America is just Rhode Island. I like America, the country that controls all 50 states as well as a whole bunch of possessions and territories and exerts control over them. That's what sovereignty is. The left no longer believes in that kind of sovereignty. But what's fascinating is what do they replace it with? What are we supposed to have in place of that sovereignty? They don't have answers. They don't tell us what we're supposed to do. They don't tell us how we are to uh, move forward in a borderless society because they don't have any answers. But this is also where I, I get so frustrated. You know, he mentioned there, Friedman, border security, how uh, Democrats will vote for border security. The problem here is the interpretation of the laws. It's not, you know, think of this like a mall, 
right? It's not that we don't have enough mall security guards. It's that the mall security guards are being told they can't chase out the vandals and the hooligans. It doesn't matter how many security guards you have. It doesn't matter how much border patrol we have if you can show up, lie, claim asylum, and stay in the country. So when they say they'll vote for border security, what they're really saying is they just want to make the process more streamlined, more comfortable. They want softer pillows and, you know, better tasting food for people that are breaking the law. And that I would note if they come as a family, unit, they're only spending two days in custody now. So they just want that process to be streamlined, but they want the open borders component to stay. Real border security would be we are, we have laws, we will enforce them, and that means keeping people out. Fundamentally, we have to accept if we're going to have a country that has borders, having borders means some people can't come in. Not everyone gets to play. I can't imagine that we'll ever do anything harder than that. I'm so proud of our coverage. NBC yeah. News, I mean, it's the best of the best. The other thing this report did is that it really corroborated a lot of the good journalism mm -hmm. that was done. Time and again in this Mueller report, reporting from major news outlets is confirmed in this Mueller report as being accurate. They think they did a great job, folks. The liberal journos, instead of understanding that they have wrecked themselves... Is this the man who wrecked the buffet at the Harrow Club this morning? Who disabled an unmarked unit with a banana? Any of you who get that, by the way, I'll be deeply impressed. Because right now you're all thinking, what the heck did Buck just say? There's a few of you out there across the country, right, of the hundreds, and hundreds of thousands of people listening to the show, there are a few of you across the country that will catch that reference. But I digress. Um... The press thinks that they did a fantastic job covering this. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the underlying premise of all of their coverage of the Russia collusion delusion was false, was wrong. And they simply do not care. And this is where you have the analysts, the so-called analysts who included former senior officials of the security apparatus, Brennan and, and Clapper and Comey's little pajama boy, whatever that guy's name is over at CNN. It's like, hey, I'm... I mean, got to tell you, not, not good advertising for the FBI. It's like, hey, I got a pajama boy, put your hands up. Uh, these people would go on TV and, and the idea was that they were sharing their deep expertise and knowledge on all this subject matter and that they had special access. So when they would say, you know, they'd have Anderson Cooper, there's new reporting out that, uh, actually Anderson's voice is a little higher than that, but you know what I'm saying. You know, there's new reporting out that, and they would talk about some news story that's usually a leak from somebody in the DOJ or a leak or, or somebody in the White House about some aspect of the investigation. And I'm not saying that that wasn't always true, but they would use, you know, sometimes that was accurate, sometimes it wasn't. But they would use whatever that news story was to just transition right away into the conversation about how any minute now they're going to just they're going to arrest Trump. They're going to frog march him out of the White House. You know, any minute now they're going to just they, the other shoe's going to drop and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's that's what was going on here, folks. That's what was happening. And I just think that it would be better if we had some honesty about that from the press. You know, I, I'm not saying that they would give up their privileged positions and their incredible perks and the vast sums of money that many of them are paid and all that. I, I get that. I, I don't think that that's going to happen. But at least 
some accountability. And that's why there will be no accountability, as we all, as we all know. The media thinks – not only do they not think they did a horrendous job, they think they're doing a good job. This is, this is gaslighting at a nuclear meltdown level. I mean, this is the Chernobyl of gaslighting the media is engaged in right now. And they, they don't care that you and I know. They don't care that it couldn't be any more obvious what a debacle, what an anti-Trump lunacy they have peddled. And that's why this weekend there's the Washington uh, or the White House rather correspondence dinner, and I'm not going. And I have, you know, I work for the Hill. If I had wanted to go, I could have gone. I, I have no interest in going. I, I don't want to be around. And I obviously have friends in the media, and I even have some friends in the liberal media. But by and large, I, I think that my, see, the, the media pretends that they are a check on power in this country. That, that is their. That is their sales pitch. You know, we are here to spread because information now is more freely shared and available than ever before. So where journalists think that they're really, you know, adding value is that they are one, accurate and two, a check on power. They speak truth to power. Democracy dies in darkness, all this stuff. The problem is journalists are really a clique of like minded liberals, a bunch of libs who all work to cover each other's back and push an agenda of activism under the guise of neutral reporting, knowing that they have immense power to shape public opinion and believing full well that even though they are lying about what they are doing, because they are doing it in the service of a righteous cause, making the country more liberal, making the country more progressive, they think that they're the good guys. I view my role as somebody in the media to not just bring you also information and analysis. I mean, I, I do not claim to be a journalist, uh, but I like to be a check on what they are doing. You know, who will watch the watchers? Well, if the media are the watchers, I watch the watchers. I know who they are. I know the games they play. I'm not impressed by them. In fact, I know much more than almost all of them about the subject matter that they are reporting on on a regular basis. Journalists as a group of people are shockingly intellectually incurious. The truth is that most of the journalists that will be at the White House Correspondents' Dinner this weekend, which I've been to and the food is bad, you know, a lot of people there that I just, you know, I, you don't really care to see or talk to and... Sitting at big banquet dinners, I'm just going to say this because I've had to do far too much of it in my life. Sitting at big banquet dinners is not my thing and not something that gets me particularly excited. Um, but some people really get into it. I don't know. But you see all these journals there, and it's really a big self-congratulation session. Just like journalism, it has a fake pretense. The pretense is that they're there to celebrate the greatness of journalism and, and provide scholarships. I and mean, this is like the Miss America thing with the scholarships. Okay, I'm glad they do some nice scholarships, but it's really a swimsuit competition. Really, right? I mean, or at least it was. I think I guess they got rid of the swimsuit competition now. But it's it's a beauty pageant that used to have a swimsuit competition. Uh, I know it does some nice charity work. That's great. But, you know, Hezbollah does some nice charity work too. I'm not comparing Miss America to Hezbollah. I'm just saying because you do some nice charity, that's going to get me in trouble. Because you do some nice charity work doesn't mean that that's your main mission in life. And because the White House Correspondents Association uh, gives some journalist, uh, you know, some journalist, not charity work, what am I trying to do? Scholarships out. It doesn't mean that 
the big self-congratulations session isn't really what this is all about. And that's what it is. So I will not be there. I mean, if you go back and watch what happened last year where Sarah Huckabee Sanders was there, I mean, it, it, it was really mean. And I'm not, I'm not an overly sensitive guy, and I know I, I like people having a sense of humor, and I even think people in the public eye need to be able to really take it. And trust me, I take it all the time. Uh, but what they did to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, which it was just disrespectful, and it was, it was low, and it was wrong. And I, I just won't, don't want to be a part of that. I, I think the press is a disgrace. Uh, I do not respect most people who work in the press. I think most of them are a bunch of self-righteous, narcissistic babies. I think that unfortunately the mentality of many people who, especially if they go to journalism school, they are indoctrinated into this thinking that they are not people that are providing a service to the public so much as they are the privileged and the elite that are responding to a calling that only they can fulfill, which is just not the case. Journalism is a, is a profession separated not by uh, qualification or credential, but by skill. And really by connections and by playing the game. The greatest skill that a journalist can have in the modern American media world is to know the right people and to be ruthless behind the scenes to get what you want. That's really what separates most of the people that you know who are household names uh, from the, the you know ABC, NBC, and most of the people that you know are up for these big nightly news jobs. There's a thousand people that could do that job. And many people who do the job even better and for far less money. But who do the executives, who do the people in the C-suite like? Who do they golf with? Who are they buddies with? That's who gets the job. And then we're supposed to believe that they're the conscience of America. I mean, I think that the, they used to call it nerd prom until everyone said, none of you think you're nerds. And nerds actually know stuff. So stop calling it nerd prom. Your sort of pseudo self-deprecation is insulting to the rest of America. And I know a lot of you are like, oh, Buck, we didn't even care. Who even knew that the White House Correspondents Dinner was this weekend? Uh, good. I'm, if you didn't know, I'm glad. Uh, but it is an important moment, I think, to just keep it real and bash these clowns for really what is just going to be a big session where all of them sit around and clap for each other and talk about how terrible Trump is. Trump is a monster. He's a, let, let me just tell you this as a little anecdote here. Uh I asked a very well-known journalist who had had the Obama administration threaten to send him to prison for doing his job. This is a real thing. I asked him, who was a bigger threat to press freedom? The administration, the Obama administration, that for reporting on, on information that was classified, but he's a journalist, that they do that. The Obama administration was threatening at one point to send him to prison, or the Trump administration that has never sent anyone to prison for doing their job as a reporter. He said, no question, the Trump administration. And I said, you are crazy. That is delusional. This is what we are dealing with. Journalists won't even stand up for the First Amendment in a real way because they hate Trump so much that they'll make excuses for the greatest threat to press freedom since World War II in this country, which is the Obama administration. User of the Espionage Act more than every administration before combined. Why don't they talk about that at the White House Correspondents' Dinner? Bunch of clowns. Protesters rampage. These days, some students would like to see limits to free speech. Free speech is not hate speech. It's not speech that's meant to harm and to deteriorate communities. 
Campus craziness, folks. Got to keep you updated on all the latest. So also you know that you can go to TakeBackTheCampus.org because you have an action item whenever we talk about the campus craziness, and that is that you can donate to my friends at the Leadership Institute. I got a crazy story for you here. Actually, I have somebody who will tell you their crazy story about uh, what they wrote up here on Reason.com. Our friend Robbie Suave is on the show now. He is an associate editor at Reason and also has a new book out, which he will tell you a little bit about. But first, Robbie, tell me about this piece. Williams College had students claiming that free speech harms, but they said even crazier stuff like students were screaming that we were trying to kill them. What happened here, my friend? Yeah, this is they're claiming that people who want free speech on campus, uh, some of the professors do, uh, they're they're hoping that the that the institution Williams College will agree to the Chicago principles, which is this pro free speech statement that the University of Chicago started. Many other colleges have signed on to it. You know that we're going to have controversial speakers. We're going to have free speech because we know this makes the campus a better, uh, stronger, more intelligent place. These students, you know, re- this is a small subset of an activist minority that is that exists on every campus, particularly our elite campuses. But they say no, having these discussions, having free speech, it harms us, and you are literally trying to kill us if you're if you're going to allow people on campus who who we disagree with. I mean, this is their this is their ideology. Not of all students, not of most students, but of a radical uh, subset that have tremendous power and influence. And they got some of the professors to sign off on having signed on to the Chicago principles because they were so afraid of offending these students. I, you know, people misuse the term literally a lot in our in our current discourse, as you know, you know. I literally was doing something that I wasn't literally doing is what you hear from people a lot. But here they were, in fact, saying that, that trying to kill them is what free speech accomplishes. I, can, you tr- can you walk me through the crazy here? Because this is, this is really the ultimate extension of... Speech equals violence, which is something that started on the campus and now has spread into the broader culture. Uh, But now it's not just speech equals violence. It's speech equals you're literally trying to kill me when, of course, you're not. How do they rationalize or to the degree they can explain this thought process on campuses? Yeah, so this is, this is a major theme of my book, which is coming out uh, in June, Panic Attack, Gang Radicals from the Age of Trump. So I interviewed a lot of these kinds of students to, to see where this comes from. And, uh, you know, it's one of their most important and foundational beliefs. Um, it, I think it comes from having uh, to have power in their activist standings. You have to, in accordance with intersectionality, you have to have, you know, some kind of oppressed status. And a way for people who actually aren't very oppressed is to have sort of a mental health issue. And uh, a way to have a mental health issue is to be uncomfortable or emotionally uncomfortable with language you don't like. And that sort of started to be the genesis of it. So you have people claiming – they're claiming it in order to, like, gain standing in the activist community that they are traumatized and they are triggered and their mental health is destroyed by your words. And this is a form of violence. And this is how you start to erode that very important distinction, because they'll, now they'll say, you know, if you're bringing someone to campus, Charles Murray, Heather McDonald, those are the, some of the conservative speakers who've been shut down. You're not just bringing someone whose views they despise, but some, you're introducing violence against them, which is why they think a, a proper technique is for them to engage often in shutting down the speakers or sometimes even defensive violence, because it's like 
self-defense for them because the words are violence themselves. It's well, this is where it gets really scary because you hear this from Antifa as well when they would start to talk about you know Nazi punching, essentially. And then when you ask them, well, who's a Nazi? And they say, like, well, Ben Shapiro and, you know, D uh, Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson. Are, and it's like, no, they're not even close to being Nazis. So it's a, it's a little terrifying when you see the way that they extend these definitions and then understand that, as you point out, they've if you view speech as violence, then you can, in quote, self-defense, engage in violence to shut down speech against you. So really, this is just through the most tortured logic, an excuse for people to act like complete maniacs of speech they don't like. But, Robbie, you know, you pointed out your book, Panic Attack is what it's called, right? Which we'll have you back on when it when it's on shelves. But, folks, you can probably pre-order it now on Amazon. Uh, Robbie, what do administrators say? Or what, what are the, the, the supposed adults here, many of whom have tenure, who are at an institution that ostensibly is supposed to be about higher education and higher learning, what do they say about shutting down speech because it's literally trying to kill people to speak freely about things? Right. I mean, in theory, the administrators and the professors are, are pro-free speech. You know, they do not agree uh, with these activists, but they're terrified of these students because they cause all the problems. You would not believe – I've talked to so many professors, leftist professors, very leftist-center professors who are more like ACLU types – who are terrified of, of offending these students because they're going to get investigated. They're going to get. Uh, they're going to get. Even if they have tenure, they're they're you know they're reliant to some degree on course evaluation. They will they will be investigated by the Title IX office for saying something about sex or gender that is not conservative. It's that's progressive, but it's an older style of progressive that is now somehow out of step with something the the younger activists decided was true five seconds ago. And, uh, and they're going to get in trouble, so they're afraid to say anything. They, you know, they tell me this privately. They say, you cannot tell anyone that I told you this, but here's what my students are putting me through. Again, not well, all students, not even most students, it, but it only takes a couple to really foundationally change the culture, and I'm worried they're going to bring that off the campus into the workplace, into tech places, Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera. I've got to say, that this, this, is, this is fascinating to me because – you know, college campuses, not only are they supposed to be incubators of thoughtful discourse and and they are the, the birthplace of the so-called free speech movement, uh, which, as we know now, is now the the open censorship movement. Uh, but but Robbie, that there are administrators who are scared of a minority of students on campuses just goes to well, one. I, I think the cowardice of some of these tenured positions and, and the administrators and the other people that are supposed to be maintaining some intellectual uh, vibrancy on these campuses and intellectual honesty. But but also, you know, where are the other students on campus when it comes to this stuff? Are they scared of them, too? Are they not willing to to say that, you know, they don't want to be called racist? I mean, what do they say to you? That's exactly what it is. Yeah, they you know, most of them would like to hear an interesting speaker they disagree with. Um, you know, they might uh, they're they're somewhere in the middle. You know, some of them think, well, I, if they're going to say something really terrible, maybe they shouldn't be here. But they're certainly not going to shut down the person. Many of them would like to hear, but they're afraid of these activists too. And now I've been at events where, so this is the best way to defeat these activists is when someone else in the audience, uh, oftentimes it is a member of the quote unquote marginalized group who is supposedly maligned or is you know literally being killed by the speaker, will stand up and say, I would like to hear what whoever it is. I would like to hear what they have to say. I don't think I agree with it, but I would like to hear it. And that sucks a lot of authority 
out of the you know the people who are who are trying to shout him down. So so when the, when the mob is confronted because it doesn't have the numbers and it doesn't have the institutional policies on its side in a lot of cases, it, it actually just takes being confronted and they can't they can be stopped. They can lose their their you know they they start to they judge the room a little bit. They go okay well maybe we're you know this shutdown is not actually going to be successful. So that can work, and I, you know, I hope more people are courageous in doing that on campuses. Because were you, if I can just know. ask Robbie, and everyone can check out Robbie's book, Panic Attack, which is just on the crazy left. Which is, I mean, one one problem I have on radio is I need a thesaurus just to come up with all the different ways to say crazy, psycho, wacko, wackadoo, because I mean, because a lot of their stuff these days, uh, that's the only way you can really describe it. But were you yourself in your day, Robbie, a a campus counter revolutionary? Because I definitely was. <laughs> I was. I went to the University of Michigan, uh, where I was pretty much a libertarian student the whole time. But I worked for the campus paper. I worked with a lot of very far left students who I disagreed with on almost everything. But but then back then, and it's not that long ago, it was 2006 to 2010, they were pro free speech leftists. You know, if somebody was going to come onto campus, we were going to defend their right to do that. It was. It was actually there's more likely there was going to be some conservative groups that were going to be offended if it was a very uh, pr- uh, provocative speaker, very far, someone like Bill Ayers or something. Uh, but that has just completely shifted in the last few years where it has become the left has been the is the pro censorship movement on campus. It's been extraordinary to watch that change happen so quickly, just even since I was on campus. Upcoming book. Panic Attack author is Robbie Suave, and he is one cool cat. You should check out his book, also Reason.com for his latest. Robbie, always great to talk to you, my friend. Uh, Congrats, and come back as soon as the book's on shelves. I'd be happy to. Thank you so much. Team, we'll be right back. Is it wrong to say that a man can't have a baby? Is it wrong to say that a man can't be a woman? Well, if you're talking about correctness, of course... That is correct. <laughs> you, you, these are these are true factual statements. But if you're talking about political correctness, well, then it is considered wrong these days to say that a man can't have a baby and a man cannot be a woman. I have a friend joining now who's going to talk about the front lines of this very real debate, folks. This is the on the edge of progressive politics right now. This is in the vanguard. Our friend. Sarab Amari joins us now. He is op-ed editor of the New York Post and author of From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith. Uh, Sarab, great to have you, my friend. And I just want to know, how did you how did you first become somebody who was involved in this debate, which the left has turned this into a debate that a man can't have a baby? Well, most recently, because I encountered a story um, in The Guardian and The Daily Mail about a Guardian journalist. Name goes by the name Freddie Connolly. Um, first name Freddie, obviously, is a man's name. Uh, who, you know, is the subject of this documentary premiering at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York that details, quote unquote, his journey as a man to become a baby. What she is is a is a female to male transgender, but biology being what it is, she still has a uterus and a capacity to uh, uh, to have a child. So. It's about his, I, I cringe when I say that, his, quote-unquote, his journey to pregnancy and, and childbearing. And I just thought, and, and all, the, all the news coverage was using the his pronoun, like he's pregnant, he's this and that, and I just, I can't stand it. So I just sent out a, a tweet, which became kind of viral, 
where I said we have to be able to say basic truths and not fall into this uh, totalitarian trap. Men cannot have babies. I repeat, men cannot have babies. And people dispute this, right? I mean, this is what we've come to this crazy place where I, I've actually seen journalists who work for real publications who take the perspective that it is, uh, and you know, earmuffs for the for the young ones out there, but that not just women have periods. This is a, this is also an article of faith now on the left. They, have you seen this? Because this is another one. Yes, because there are transgender men who have periods because they're still they're menstruate because they still have the reproductive organs that since time immemorial we've uh, used to determine someone's sex. Uh, and so they say not not all not all uh, is you know that men can can menstruate. Um, yes. So here's what's really happening in this book. Uh, about a decade ago, as recently as a decade ago, the LGBT groups still said that transgender people are born in one sex but identify with another. And there is a very small subsection of people who have this problem, and it was still thought about as as a mental disorder. Uh, but as time wore on, the the agenda has become ever more radical so that the trans movement no longer says, and I kid you not, no longer says so-and-so is a man who identifies as a woman or a woman who identifies as a man. No, that person is a man, was always a man. And that's the kind of radical, by the way, you know, mind matter dualism that they trade in that, you you know, my subjective sense that I'm a, I'm a woman overrides everything. It overrides all we know about biology, about chromosomes, about how sex differentiation happens at the motive, mo moment of conception with any kind of species like us that has sexual dimorphism. All of that is overridden by my su subjective state. And therefore, if I say I, I, I'm not so Rob and Buck, you have to call me Sabrina, you have to call me Sabrina. And not only was I not... I was always Sabrina. It's this bizarre kind of memory holding. I was always Well, well this is why dead naming, heard. you know, what you're talking about, this, this concept of dead naming, which right now can get you banned from Twitter. I'm sure you know that. That's, that's an official Twitter diktat that if you, if you dead name someone, and I've always wondered, people get names wrong all the time. People make fun of my kind of weird name all the time. I mean, that's, this doesn't seem like some horrible thing, especially given that, you know, occasionally I will refer to Bradley Manning Oh, well, I just did, but I mean, I'll refer to the person now who is called Chelsea Manning as Bradley Manning. I'm not doing it to put anyone down, but when he stole all that stuff, he was Bradley Manning. And yet, if you do that, it's considered a grave offense. And I think you're explaining to me within the transgender community and on the left why it's such a grave offense, because it's not that there has been a decision made to change from, say, Bradley to Chelsea. It's that Chelsea Manning, according to the left's just revision of reality, Bradley was always Chelsea. This is fascinating. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, this is a, a pretty radical departure from not only obviously what Western tradition has handed us down, to, you know, through, through the Judeo-Christian tradition of Genesis, set, set Genesis aside, this is an assault on science. By the way, the thing that's very interesting to me is how how often the trans movement ends up working against the aims of the, or at least what used to be the aims of the feminist movement. So, for example, you have um, athletes who are born male, 
now identify as female competing against biological women, but because they have the stamina and the muscle mass of, of, of well, male athletes, they really dominate the fields that they get into. So women's sports gradually becoming to be dominated by men. Now, pregnancy, something that used to be always bound up deeply with femininity and what it meant to be a woman, something that you and I, Buck, could never experience. There was something sacred about that and something that women took pride in is now being framed as a male experience because there are these you know, so-called men who can become pregnant. In each of these instances, it's women who take a kind of back seat now. If you open the like top women's glossy magazines, the ones that are like the woman of the year, often nowadays the woman of the year is someone who is born male. So it's erasing biological women. It's uh, it's incredible, and, it, and it's really it's all just self contradiction and, and really a, a form of insanity. But Sarab, as always, insightful and eloquent stuff from you on this. Appreciate it, Sarab Amari. Everybody, op-ed editor of the New York Post. Check out his book from fire by water, my journey to the Catholic faith. You know, Sarab, I'd love to have you back, you know, maybe uh, next Friday if you're up for it. And I'd like to have a more in-depth conversation just about your book, because I'm really curious. I'd love that, Buck. Thank you. All right, Sarab, great to talk to you. Uh, team? Cheers, buddy. We, cheers, my friend. Uh, we've got uh, more coming up here in just, just a moment. You know, occasionally things get uh, a little spicy on the set of Rising. It does It does happen. There are, there are moments when i got to bust out the spice put some put some hot sauce on it so to speak and today was one of those days i just i just kind of had it uh, with a russia collusion truther who's actually a nice guy and i don't i don't have anything against him i just think he's very very wrong on this but we'll get to that in a moment there was no <laughs> indictable uh. conspiracy there was absolutely collusion you know there was they took a meeting with the russians they took the information from the russians he called on the russians to release uh, uh, to release well, emails what is, your, what is your definition of collusion that right. would be it Taking a meeting with somebody. No, with taking with a meeting, taking not a knowing what they're going to tell you or what. You're oh yes, they did know what they were going to okay. tell them. They knew exactly. Well, they that, were taking the meeting because they didn't give them any information in the meeting. They were so. taking the meeting because they were they were uh, they were proffered negative information on Hillary Clinton from the Russian government. That's just a statement. It was not from the Russian government. It was from a Russian it was. lawyer. It was absolutely not from the Russian government. They, and I need to know something. If that's a really bad idea, if that's wrong and terrible and nasty, what is it when the DNC pays a law firm to hire a foreigner? Christopher Steele, who is not a U.S. citizen, has no role in U.S. elections whatsoever, to use Russian subsources in a smear campaign that now the New York Times itself says may have been a Russian disinformation campaign, and run that through the FBI and the press in this country, who bought the whole thing hook, line, and sinker. First How all, is that not foreign interference all, in the election? I, mean, was, I just need to know. Okay, first of all, they're all foreign. Okay, I'm going to answer your question. Yeah, go for it. First of all, it was Republicans who hired them That's first. That's crap. It's true. That is crap. It's just true. It is not. That was of for a se- that true. was a separate contract doing separate of work before This is like saying that if you hire a lawyer to do one thing, and somebody Second, else hires a lawyer later on, it's the same case. It's not you, the same case. Did you read Facts Checker yesterday in the Post? They took down. They went down every allegation in the Steele dossier, and all but one are confirmed. And the only one that's not confirmed are the videotapes. You're kidding me. The, the no, golden go, showers. Go the golden you. showers videotapes of the president of the United States. That's what did I just say? That's the one that's not confirmed. <laughs> However, I'm sorry. You're saying like there's so oh much wrong God, here that I'm going to lose my mind. God, Michael Cohen, God. has he been to Prague? Yes or no? We don't really know. We think maybe you're not. You're, not, you're in a fantasy. <laughs> you're in a fantasy land right now. That's absolute madness. Well. Fantasyland, baby. That's where the Democrats are. That was from Rising today. That was a fun one, I got to say. Complete and utter nonsense. I mean, just 
as ridiculous as ridiculous gets. And you know, Joe McClain, he's he's a smart guy. I'm I'm and I actually I like Joe, so I'm not here to 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 trash Joe as as a person. I'm not, but he's he suffers from Trump derangement syndrome. I mean, he he has a he has a problem. It's like I'm sitting there and I'm talking to an addict. But instead of him being like, hey, like, I need my meth, man. Like, give me my meth. He's like, I need my Russia collusion, man. It's just not normal. I mean, the things that he's saying, the Russian government had nothing to do with the Trump Tower meeting. That was a woman who has ties to the, she's a Russian lawyer who has ties to the Russian government. By the way, also has ties to Fusion GPS, which they always leave out of this, which is highly shady, very Suspect, isn't it? The very firm that was using the dossier, pulling the dossier together, and then having it run through our own intelligence community, that same firm had hired Natalia Veselnitskaya to work for them to get, or was working together with regard to Russian sanctions. Is, we're supposed to think that's a coincidence, folks? Come on. We're past that, right? We, I know you and I are, but even the Democrats should not hold on to that delusion, but they're holding on to a lot of delusions. Also, this just the, these are the talking points. Though this was, it was like I was checking him for Trump derangement syndromes. You know, do you have a fever? You know, do your reflexes work? Are you having you know trouble breathing? And like one symptom after another from Trump derangement syndrome. The Russian government did collude with Trump. The Republicans paid for the dossier. the The dossier is true. I said, can you can you just admit that Michael Cohen? Under oath said he's never been to Prague, and even forget what he says under oath. Unless you believe that Michael Cohen's actually a super spy and has fake identities that he travels under, finding out, I worked in law enforcement, I worked in the intelligence community, I know this for a fact. Finding out where someone has done international travel when they're a U.S. citizen, if you have the proper database and clearance, takes about 30 seconds. So th this is just crazy. I mean, there's no question that Michael Cohen has never been to Prague. Never mind what he said under oath. We know he's never been to Prague, and that was in the dossier. We know that there are no, quote, golden showers videos, and that was in the dossier. We know that I mean, there's so much in the dossier that's not true. But they run around just saying, they, they repeat the lie enough, you know, it's four legs good, two legs bad. They repeat the phrase enough that no one challenges it, that no one thinks more about it. Anyway, sometimes you need a buck slap. Joe needed a buck slap today, and I think right now he's got a handprint on the left side of his face, but it was kind of deserved. Ain't no party like a Team Buck party, because a Team Buck party don't stop. Yeah, we got Buck turned up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Doesn't that announcer voice sound a bit? That's our friend Andy who does the voice over there. Doesn't it sound a little bit like Optimus Prime? What do you think, Mark? Autobots, unite. Isn't that what he says? He does sound like that. He does say he sounds a little bit like Optimus Prime. Optimus Prime was a badass, dude. I liked Optimus back. And then they, and the, the cartoons were great. Then they made the movies. The movies were not so good. I'm going to avoid complaining today about the fact that there are, you know, all these people who are going to go see the Avengers, whatever, Aven Avengers Endless Infinity Endgame. Ultra. Oh, there we go. 
and, and, and Avengers Endless Infinity, Infinity Ultra Endgame or whatever it's called. There we go. So we'll see. We will see. Um, are you going to go see it, Mark? Are you? I am. Are you actually in this? You are. You like these? All right. You know what? I, I give. I, everyone likes it except for, I'm just a weirdo. Everyone likes these these movies. It's going to make a billion dollars, folks. It's going to open to like a $300 million weekend in China or something crazy like that. And I'm just sitting here like, oh, get off my lawn with the Avengers. I don't like it. Uh, have you ever even tried to like them? Dude, I, Mark, I'm telling you I've tried, man. I've, I've given it a shot. I actually thought that the Thor movie uh, Ragnarok had some funny moments. I actually thought that wasn't terrible. But some of these Avenger movies, there's no plot. It's just like weird monsters and then lots of fights in the street with, you know, the Hulk and the... Blah. It's just, you know, but ever, I know everyone... everyone it's just, not for everyone. I get it. Yeah, everyone boos me on this one. I, I, you know, I understand. It's just a lot of CGI and not a lot of thoughtful dialogue or acting. All right, Marcus, you're going to save me for myself here. Uh, here we go. Marcus writes, whoa, Marcus, this is very long, so I can't read this on air, but thank you for sending it in, and I will read it when I am done. Brandon writes, hey, Buck, have you heard the Tom Arnold interview he did with Michael Knowles early in Michael's podcast? But yes, Tom, uh, Brandon, not Tom, Tom Arnold's the other guy. Uh, there are people who have completely they've completely lost their minds on Russia collusion. It doesn't matter what um, what you tell them. It doesn't matter what the evidence is there. This is a conspiracy theory and conspiracy theories are very difficult for people to drop. So that's where we are. Um, there you have it. Glenn writes, I find it interesting that President Trump drastically reduced the dependent class through reducing unemployment and bringing jobs back. And it seems the answer to that has been caravans to replenish the dependent class. Keep up the good work. Uh, Glenn, I have said it before. I'll say it again. There are very, very in-depth studies that look at the effect of, of illegal immigration, in particular on wages on a state by state and really sub-district by sub-district of that state. And it definitely has an effect. And also the long-term uh, cost to a country of having essentially a n predominantly uneducated and non-English speaking underclass. Uh, what happens when they all retire, folks? The 40-year-old illegal alien gardener or uh, you know, dishwasher, when he turns 65, he gets Medicare? Yes or no? The 50-year-old the guy who you know mows your lawn, do, does he get Medicare? At 65, he's not in the country legally. He doesn't have legal status. There's millions of people like this. What happens to them? You know what's going to happen. Democrats are going to say, oh, it's this is the necessary and humane thing to do. Well, now we're just giving now they're just taking a lot of money from you and giving free health care to people that were never supposed to be here. That's what's going to happen. That is what is going to happen. But nobody wants to listen to me. Well, you want to listen to me on this, but none of the Democrats want to listen to me on this. Uh, Richard. Writes, you were right about Mayor Big Bird. He is a moron. <laughs> it's talking about de Blasio. Yes, he's also called Mayor Big Bird. Yeah. But he's exactly what NYC deserves. I live upstate, and so as long as the idiot voters in NYC keep inflicting that criminal imbecile lunatic Andrew Cuomo on us, they deserve everything they get from their idiot mayor. I hope he bankrupts them. Well, I hope you bankrupt yourself, sir, because Governor Cuomo has only one speed, and it involves yelling. 
and talking down to people as though they're all hard of hearing and very stupid. I don't really have a de Blasio impression, except he kind of sounds like this. And he's just like, I'm just going to retrofit all the buildings because of climate change. Because my name is Bill de Blasio. If you listen to a de Blasio clip, he kind of sounds like that. I, 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 you, think I, you think I'm playing, but I'm for real. Uh, Robert. Buck, I am praying I misheard you. Please tell me you didn't just say when it's love is Van Halen's best song. That's like saying Joe Scarborough is your favorite conservative. Ouch. The range is hot today. Nothing with Sammy Hagar can be considered even good Van Halen. Okay. At best go back and listen to Van Halen one and two love the show. Well, Robert, I think your Van Halen knowledge likely exceeds my own. So I don't know that I'm in a position to really challenge you on this, but how do I know when it's love? It can't splat da 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 Ooh, that part I got. That's all that's all I've got for you on that one. I'm gonna stop. I'm not I was gonna quit while I'm ahead, but I'm actually not quitting while I'm ahead, am I? I'm in fact I'm in fact way behind. It's kinda sad. Andres cool spelling of the name, by the way. San Francisco fecal maps? Are celebrity fecal maps going to be the next thing? Wow, this is quite scatological, Andres. As you know, many of our nation's wonderful cities were once wonderful. Sad stuff, man. Shields high, Buck. Yeah, what, what he's referring to, folks, in case you didn't know, is that now San Francisco is, has these uh, interactive digital maps of where there is, um, I don't know what else to say other than to say it, human poop on the streets. Because people are living in the streets, and guess what? They will as part of their normal biological processes, have to expel waste. That expulsion of waste manifests itself in you-know-what, and that falls in places all over the street when people are not, in fact, living in homes and have indoor plumbing and sewage, and et cetera, et cetera. And this is a real problem in San Francisco. And I've got to tell you, all it takes with some of these public these uh, public nuisances and public hazard situations is one really nasty outbreak of some kind of disease, maybe something we've seen before, maybe something we haven't seen before. And everyone's going to say, oh, my gosh, how could we have allowed people in a dense urban environment to live on the streets without running water and sanitation? And and the answer is, well, we all knew it was bad, but the libs are hey, man, San Francisco. Just like let people like live their truth, man, like whatever, you know? They're ruining San Francisco. San Francisco is turning into like a Latin American country where you have a super elite wealthy class and then everybody else gets to wallow in the poop on the streets. It's not good. It's not the way it's supposed to be. You know, we should have a society that is much more level than that. And everyone deserves clean streets in this country and in Latin American countries that are particularly poor. Uh, so next up here, Cindy. No need to read this on air. Okay, Cindy. Um, I will not. Scott. Hey, Buck. In regards to modern, beautiful churches, check out Sagrada Familia, the Basilica in Barcelona. Construction started in 1882 and is scheduled to finish in 2026. The centenary of Gaudi, the designer, chief architect's death. It's kind of odd looking, but beautiful. Shields high. Scott, all that fancy talk. I have no idea what that really was, but... Uh, there you have it. There you have it. Um, let's see what else we have here. Roger. 
writes, Buck, in reference to student loan forgiveness, what about those who were killed in the wars while serving out their service obligation for ROTC or Academy scholarships? Uh, what are you asking me? Should somebody who was killed have their loans forgiven? Of course. Um, that's but you know this is like saying, well, should people that fight for our country get separate health care paid for? Yes, that's a that's an obligation that we, the people of this country, have to those who serve in our armed forces. So, in, in terms of those who were killed while serving abroad, yeah, yeah, I, and I'm actually Roger. I, I you might know more about this than me. My assumption would be, and perhaps it's a wrong assumption. That, that any debt that you, uh, any student loan debt that you have, which is a debt to the federal government, uh, if you are killed while serving uh, or ROTC or Academy Scholarship, that that would be wiped away right away. But I, I actually don't know. Um, but I'm all for, you know, the making good on the promise to to our soldiers um, of taking care of them when they're when they're back home and taking care of them when they're, when they're overseas. Uh, let's see here. But that's interesting, Roger. I don't know about that. I, I've never really thought about it. See, this is one of, the, one of the great things about this show is so many of you have, you bring your knowledge to what I do. And it forces me to have to track down a lot and do a lot of research that I wouldn't have otherwise done. And it really is a, a this is a symphony and we are all playing different instruments. I mean, maybe I'm the conductor, but all of you, some of you are second violin, some of you got the tuba. You need a tuba player. You can make fun of the tuba player, but that guy's got some got some bass. All right. Michael writes, Buck, I am in L.A. and streaming your show at 3 p.m. on iHeartRadio. If I miss it, I listen, but your show sometimes is preempted by sports, but it replays 24-7 on iHeart until your next show. Yeah, folks, if, if I'm ever, this is important, if I'm ever preempted in your this really only, from what I understand, tends to happen in the L.A. market because uh, they have some huge sports franchises that will sometimes coincide with my show, which is not always great for me. Um, but the thing you can do is listen on the iHeart app live. You can listen live on the iHeart app. The Buck Sexton Show is streaming on the iHeart app. You can do that anytime you like. So that's what I would say uh, you should do. Um, you can always wait for the podcast, but if you want to listen in real time, just go, and, and if you don't catch me on your local state, or if you're out of reach of your local station, iHeart app, it's free. Just download it and then search The Buck Sexton Show, and you can oh, and the show will just play on a loop there. So even if you're not live, you'll hear the show from the day before. All right, team, that's it for today. Fantastic stuff. Looking forward to talking to you tomorrow. Shields high.